Welcome back to Answering Religious Error. We continue our studies tonight from Ecclesiastes. So if you'll take your Bibles and go ahead and get it ready for chapter 5, uh, we'll be picking up with our study in just a few moments. We want to remind you that Answering Religious Error comes to you every Tuesday evening, if the Lord wills, right here at this time. Um, and also on Wednesdays for our live Bible Q&A. Uh, we want you to uh, tune in about noon Eastern Standard Time. Uh, right here, whether you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, and uh, be a part of that conversation. If you have any questions, and you might think of some tonight, uh, go ahead and email us, questions at answeringreligiouserror.com, and we'd be happy to uh, add your questions to our list uh, so that we can discuss on our uh, Wednesday afternoon show, and uh, we hope that you'll tune in for that. And you can also be part of the chat. If you go to our Facebook page for Answering Religious Error or YouTube, uh, we will be able to see that chat and add your questions um, as they come up as well. So be a part of that program. I'll remind you about that at the end of our show tonight. I also want to go ahead and remind you of the Daily Answer podcast uh, every weekday beginning as early as 5 a.m. Eastern Time. And uh, you'll meet Mark Dunnigan in just a moment, who headlines that show for us. And we thank him for all of his efforts. He's done about 106, 107 programs already and uh, really rocking along. So we are glad and very blessed uh, to have him with Answering Religious Error. We also want to remind you that after this program airs tonight, as well as all of Answering Religious Error programs, they will uh, pop up in a podcast platform. So like the Daily Answer, just tell your favorite podcast platform to play uh, Answering Religious Error, and uh, it'll pop right up. And so if there's something that you missed tonight, you can go back and watch it in video format on YouTube, uh, Facebook, or in a podcast form. And we hope that you'll share that information with others. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, we are studying from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and Mark has titled the lesson, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing where that discussion goes. Uh, how are you guys doing tonight? We have with us Mark Dunnigan that I mentioned a moment ago. We have uh, uh, Stephen McCrary with us and Mark Gibson. Great to see you guys. How's your week been? Great to be on the show, Chris. I got Bella with me here tonight, and so she's kind of giving me tips on Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Um, of course, next week, next week down here is lectures, and so... I believe starting Friday night, Chris, we have, I think, five people showing up in every bedroom, including this office, having someone oh, wow. in it. So next week's going to be a busy, uh, well, this weekend and next week, but that's good. Looking wow. for some amazing conversations. Absolutely. Wow. That is fantastic. Well, guys, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, get into the show this evening. And before we do... Let's bow our heads in prayer. And as our guest tonight, Stephen, I'm going to call on you to lead us in that prayer, if you wouldn't mind. I'd be happy to. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for all the things that you do for us and the grace and the mercy that you so richly bestow. We know, Lord, that you know all, you see all, and you have so much power, Father. And yet you look upon us with mercy and, and love and care. You're so tender with us. You're so careful with us, and we praise you for this, and we thank you, Lord, for this time together. Help us to consider the words of your servant Solomon. We don't know uh, how he ended up in, in terms of his relationship with you, Father, but we can trust that 
these uh, points of wisdom are useful for us. We thank you so much for the work of your son, Jesus, and the great work of salvation. We thank you for the work of your apostles in making that clearer to us. Help us to live that life, Father. Help us now to focus on these things in good ways and help us to study together profitably. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Yes, and we certainly uh, pray that Solomon found his way back to God. Certainly these words of encouragement would be things that he looks back on in life. And it just kind of reminds us, no matter how old you are, no matter how old you get, uh, remember your creator from the days of your youth. And we'll be studying that in a few weeks. But um, how can we look back upon what we were taught uh, righteously from our youth and reject that in our older years? And so uh, we hope to encourage you, whether young or old, go ahead and share this video with uh, other folks that might be listening. And uh, Mark Dunnigan, uh, take it away. Well, let's grab the first nine verses, Chris. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven, you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Um, first question that we bring up here, Chris. You know, the uh, Solomon has dealt with a number of things. He's dealt with like money and time and um, work and the different avenues that people seek to find happiness and pleasure outside of God. Here's a book that talks about vanity. And yet the author in a number of verses here early on introduces worship. Any thoughts on that? Any thoughts on the introduction of worshiping God in a book that often deals with the subject of vanity? Mm-hmm. Well, worship is one way in which man can seek to find fulfillment. Um, that's uh, one of many ways. Uh, and the wise man here, Solomon, deals with the matter of seeking a higher being uh, and how we approach that higher being. And of course, if we look at what the Bible reveals, there is only one God, one true God, the God of Israel. And Israel was a light to the nations concerning that truth. And therefore, for Israelites and all those that would understand the truth about God, approaching the one true God was a very important matter. And certainly one's worship could be rendered vain if they did not 
approach that God properly. Uh, and so Solomon deals with the idea of worship, just as he deals with all matters of life, because that that is a part of man's life here under the sun, is even seeking that which is above the sun, that uh, seeking those things that are greater than him and greater than this earth. And so how we do that is important because we don't want to be vain in our worship. We don't want to be useless in our worship. We don't want to be careless in our worship, much less in any part of our lives as the wise man investigates those things here in the book of Ecclesiastes. So just to, to deal with the, your first thought here, why introduce going to worship? That should be a big part of an individual's life here on this earth. For there is a seeking, I mean, we looked, we saw there in chapter two, the, or chapter three, rather, that there is eternity in one's heart, in man's heart. And so he does seek something greater than himself. And there is some purpose greater than just the humdrum of this life. And so worship introduces that part. Mark, that's a great point. Uh, that would be the ultimate vanity, right? I mean, to worship the creator in vain is the ultimate waste of your time. Uh, I guess you could look at it that way. That that would be the biggest loss is, as Jesus said, in vain did they worship me, teaching as their doctrines, the commandments of men. Also, I, th I appreciate what you said, Mark. I, I appreciate the reminder that too many people view this as a cynical book. It's not cynical. It's realistic. And it's not secular because often, like here, fear God, worship God. Watch your step when you go and worship God. Take God seriously. Don't be flippant. Uh, the writer really brings us back to, to make sure that we don't end up having a vain life in the end. But Stephen, what do you got for us? Well, uh, it occurs to me that this is, you know, he really is continuing on the same strain because not only is Ecclesiastes a book uh, about, you know, speaking of vanity, it's a book of contrasts. He's he's going back and forth between, as you said, this is not a dour uh, book. I, I I I miss this book for so long to to completely think about it and say, well, it's all vanity anyway. It's all pointlessness, and so that sort of nihilistic aspect there. But no, he is contrasting the life with God versus the life without God. It's the same life. It's the same. So. In this particular case, in verse one, you have two people going into worship and with very different mindsets, with their very different approaches. One is drawing near. He's encouraging, encouraging him to walk prudently, meaning, you know, be wise about this. Keep watch over your heart. Draw near to here rather than to give the sacrifice of fool, fools. Well, what would that imply about the fools? It would imply to me that the sacrifice of fools are the ones who are coming there and just being distant. Uh, these are people who are coming, are, are a part of the, the worship, but they're living their lives in vanity without him. Uh, as uh, someone has said before, they're practical atheists. They, they say they believe in God. They do things that might indicate a belief in God. But in terms of their life as a whole, they live as if God means nothing to them. So uh, this seems to me to point to 
the thought in the New Testament, and and I think there's a pretty good parallel that we're supposed to incline our ear to the master. We're supposed to draw near. Um, in Mark 10, 21, Jesus told the young ruler, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give to the poor and come and follow me. He needed to be at the feet of the master. And the one thing that we need is in Luke 10 and verse 42. Remember Martha says, Jesus, get, get Mary to help me. You know, I'm, I'm busy with serving. And he says, Martha, Martha, you know, she, he says, Mary has chosen that one thing and it, it won't be withheld from her. And what's that one thing to sit at the feet of the master and listen to him. That's what we're going to be doing for eternity. So if I think that I can come into worship and just toss my money in the collection plate and say, I, I've done what I need to do, then my heart's not right. I, I'm not in the right place. I'm not in the right headspace. I come there and and I'm not talking about necessarily where you sit, but I tell you, sometimes you do see this where people come and they sit in the back row and they never move from that back row. Uh, they never do anything. They never are a part of anything. They're never involved. These people may, may even be ostensibly members of the local church, but they're not really a part of the work. Uh, so I think that's the two kind of hearts you see in contrast here. Chris, yeah, what do you, yeah, what do you got, Chris? Until we go uh, before we go to that next question. Yeah, it's 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 hard to say anything different than what these guys have already pointed out. But I guess I can kind of talk about the phrase that we constantly use, especially in our prayers, and we like to tell people, you know, put away the cares of the world. There's there's so much in in scripture that tells us to look to things above, um, not the things of the earth. Colossians three, you know, comes to mind. Um, Psalm chapter 119 and verse 37 says, turn your eyes from worthless things, uh, preserve my life according to your words. And uh, we need to look at what's important in this life. And um, remember that one, worship is for God. I, I think a lot of times people miss that point. They, like the fool, you know, come to worship. And the first thing that people will say is, well, what am I going to get out of it? Uh, how's this going to benefit me? Uh, you know, am I going to feel good about myself? Am I going to leave a better person? Am I going to, and I, 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 you know, I, I want to say there's no I in worship, but there actually is, <laughs> but that's just the whole point. Um, worship is for God. It's not for self. Now, that being said, we are the beneficiaries of that worship. Um, we, we are encouraged. We are lifted up. Why? Because we strengthen our relationship with God. It's about increasing our faith. So there is a matter of me and I that has to be considered here. But here's the problem. We're missing the target if we don't focus on God. So far in these lessons, one of the constant themes that we have seen are the concerns mentioned before in this present world. And a lot of them are Ho humdrum everyday things that we're dealing with, uh, the vanities of this life. Some are bad things that we have to deal with and we want help to overcome. A lot of people today, I, I hear this all the time. You know, people want lessons preached about, you know, um, you know, overcoming the hardship. Uh, I mean, everybody likes a good Job lesson. Everybody likes a good lesson as to why uh, do the wicked prosper, you know, and it just goes on and on. I'm, I'm thinking, 
I know there's a lot of people hurting in the world today, but really everybody, I mean, is there nobody that just is so fully immersed in their relationship with God that they're just happy in life and everybody wants to be happy, right? You know, and they preach lessons on happiness, but we got to put our trust in God. And this, this kind of gets back to that vanity. You know, the, the efforts that you put into this life, the return is not going to be as great as what you put into your service to God. Jesus said, lay your treasure in heaven. That's where your heart must be. As we'll see in the next verse, in just a few moments, there's importance to what our heart utters, what we're thinking and what we're believing. Worship is not just a going through the motions kind of thing. But I think we'll talk more about that as the lesson unfolds. If I may quickly add as well, Solomon knew a lot about worship. He he spent a lot of time, effort, and wealth on praise to God. So he's an informed source on how to approach him, I think. Well, let's throw up that next question on the screen there, Chris. And uh, before we... Uh... Before we get there, I just wanted to kind of wrap up a couple little loose ends on what we just talked about. And that is that obviously God's not desperate for worshipers and God is to be treated as holy. And that means we treat him with respect, which means we need to prepare to worship. Uh, he deserves our best concentration, our best effort. Malachi 1 would be a good example of that where people were offering blind and lame animals in worship and God was insulted and man would be insulted by that too. And anything that you want to call worship is not worship. There is the sacrifice of fools. And that would include like offering him things that are not authorized. It would include uh, showing up, but still being in sin and living a double life. It would include like following religious tradition instead of scripture. That would be the sacrifice of fools. Christian noted that worship's about God. It's not about us. And it's not about us being entertained. And the other thing, Chris, I can't help but um, in our modern religious denominational culture, you hear, come as you are. And, okay, I want you to come. I want you to come. I want you to come. Um but understand this when you come you're coming to where you're coming to where god's word the creator's word is being read and so yeah whatever you got to put on put it on and show up but when you get here understand you're not to remain as you are and god does deserve the utmost of your concentration and respect but here's here's our next question here um, obviously, we have passages that say, pray without ceasing, or it will tell us, cast your every care upon him, for he cares for you. Okay, how do, how do we harmonize those passages with, let your words be few? <laughs> okay, so thoughts on that. Uh, Mark, you want to start us off on that? Well, it, it's, it, it's a fair warning here to us. We got to be very, very careful about our words. And sometimes we think the more we talk, the better. We can just, just talk a thing to death or just talk our way out of any situation. Uh, but that doesn't work with God. And it's fearful there when you read in, in verse 4 there, when he talks about making vows and keeping them. God has no pleasure in fools. And a fool in, uh, 
in the wisdom literature was one who acted without proper wisdom. He was, uh, he was immature in his understanding. And uh, sometimes when we don't really know what we're doing, we can talk too much. And you, <clears throat> it's like the old, the old adage says, you know, better to be thought a fool than to open our mouths and remove all doubt. And we've got to be very, very careful that we don't talk too much and get too chatty. I think about what Jesus warned even there on the Sermon on the Mount when he warned there in Matthew chapter 6 about the vain repetitions of the heathen. He said they, they think they'll be heard for their many words. Um, they just repeat and repeat and repeat. And what better example, at least in the Bible of that, is in First Kings 18 of the Baal worshipers there on Mount Carmel from morning till midday. O Baal, hear us. But as, uh, as the Holy Spirit sargastically said, no one answered, no one paid attention. There was no Baal there. But they thought the more they said it, the better. Well, it doesn't work. And, and Jesus' parable of the publican and the Pharisee. <clears throat> the Pharisee was awfully chatty in his prayer, telling God how good he was and he wasn't like that awful publican over yonder. Uh, and But whose prayer was heard? Well, it was just the seven words of the publican. God, hear thou me, a sinner. Uh, he went to his house uh, exalted because God had respect for his prayer. It was from the heart. It just wasn't just a lot of words about how good I am or what I'm going to do and so forth and so on. As we'll see, the worst thing to do is to tell God how great you are and how much good you're going to do and then not do it. God, that, that's foolish, and, uh, and God has no pleasure in that. So when we think about uh, telling God our cares from the heart, that has nothing to do with what we're seeing here in chapter 5 and verse 2 of Ecclesiastes of, uh, of doing a multitude of words, vows that we don't intend to, intend to keep, that's quite a different matter than sincerely taking our cares to God. That's a good point. I think even the language of verse two, the word impulsive and rash, I think are uh, good indicators of that. Stephen, what do you got? Well, I really looked at, you know, the don't speak, you know, don't let your heart utter anything hastily before God. Uh, God is in heaven, you on earth. It's this sense where you kind of know where he is. I think there's a sense here where we also have to watch out the kind of promises we're making to God. And I've, I've heard this point recently too, a few times. So I didn't come up with this, but I think it's so spot on. We sing songs on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night, if we worship on Wednesday nights that have a lot of promises to God in them. And we need to take a step back and think about, do we really mean those promises? When the role is called up yonder, I'll be there, okay? Am I living in such a way to be there on that day when the role is called up yonder? We sing the song, uh, none of self and all of thee. Is that really how we're living our life? Or are we just singing that? Um, I, I don't remember all the lyrics, but the, the song that goes, that will be glory, be glory for me, talking about heaven. I think some people, they want to go to heaven, but they don't live as if they're going to have a good time up there. And so it's, it's a matter where don't make, and, and this is basically the same thing that Mark said, but don't make promises to the Lord that you don't intend to keep. And, and also don't make promises to the Lord that 
even if you intend to keep it, maybe you don't stop and think about the significance of that promise. You have said that to the Lord before other brothers and sisters in Christ singing together with them, making melody in your heart, praising God, praying to him through that, teaching each other, but you're also making promises to him about how you're going to live your life. I'm reminded of Judges 11 and Jephthah. Jephthah made this promise uh, to get victory. He, he reached out to God. He says he made a vow to the Lord. If you'll indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, we could, we've talked about that, haven't we? How, how that's just an absurd promise as well. You know, I, I guess he's hoping that there's just going to be a goat come out of his front door. But who does come out of his front door? It's his daughter. And he keeps to what he said. Now, uh, there's debate over what all that means, and I'm not getting into that tonight. My point, though, is that let's not make promises that we can't keep. Let's not make promises that we don't don't want to keep. Uh, and and I think there's a sense here, too, where less can be more with our worship. Uh, we don't have to, uh, you know, I, 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 and this, the, the comment is, is, is said here too, and I think this is a good point that uh, sometimes our prayers need to be less verbose, uh, and and sometimes even in you know I, I heard a brother one time in a very tense situation at a church just uh, you know asked to asked a brother to pray, and he all the prayer was was Lord help us to do better, Amen, and that was that was what was needed that that filled that moment. And I know that's not necessarily worship, but uh, my point is less is more. Good, good thought, Stephen. I, uh, there's a Psalm, Psalm 15. I think it is that the, the godly man swears to his own hurt and does not change. That is, he makes a promise. It wasn't foolish or rash, but it starts to cost him. It has some unintended consequences and he keeps it and he keeps it. And, uh, I, I don't know, Chris, I don't, I, I, it, I don't know how in our modern culture that a violation of the marriage vow is not viewed as like a breach of contract with severe consequences. I mean, and it's, it's one of those things like if you stand up before people, your guests, your friends, and promise your lifelong love, the one, someone that you claim to love more than anybody else, and you don't keep that, why should I ever trust anything you say? I mean... I, I don't know. That, that's just one of those things that it seems our culture just wants to whitewash and like, we don't want to talk about that right now. Okay, Chris, you got any thoughts before we get that next question up there? Well, I just might comment on some of the uh, good uh, comments that we're getting in the chat. Um, Terry's joined us in the chat. Uh, he's not feeling well tonight, so he's not on the program, but uh, he's uh, commenting through the Answering Religious Error uh, page. And one of the things that he points out is um, along the lines of what Stephen was talking about, you know, singing songs we don't mean is a heart far from God. And it reminds me of Ephesians 5 and, and of course, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, that we are to, uh, you know, sing, um, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You know, everything that we do in our worship needs to be, uh, you know, from the heart and to the Lord. And when we say from the heart, we don't mean just what you're feeling at the time. We're not talking about being led by your emotions, but being led by the word of God. You know, when I talk about, when I, when I look at harmonizing passages, as the question indicates here, 
I, I can't, my first thought went to, you know, first Peter chapter four and verse four, if, if any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And, um, you know, when, when we're talking, especially to God, um, you know, what are we saying? You know, we, people want to just visualize God as just uh, kind of a good old buddy, good old friend kind of thing. And, um, and not that he's not our, our friend. We sing songs, you know, I'll be a friend to Jesus. And, um, you know, in those things, that's again, like Stephen was pointing out, the, the promises that we're making to him and the songs that we're singing, there's responsibility that goes along uh, with the words of, of hymns like that. Cause as you indicated, they're like, they're like prayers, but um, you know, we're not to be bound up in the foolishness, you know, God's given us words by which he desires to be praised. Uh, grant them my, Sometimes I've got to explain them, you know, from my own, you know, understanding, but you can do no better than to go to scripture and, and read scripture, you know, to praise God. Uh, the Psalms are full of them. Uh, God tells us exactly how he wants to be praised. And we get caught up with our words sometimes. And I do this, I, I'll get tongue tied and not know what I'm going to say next. And all because we, we hate dead air. We hate for the silence, you know, to just get awkward and we feel like we have to say something. And that's usually when we say something stupid. That's usually when we say something that's irrelevant to the given situation. And so we must choose our words wisely. And so when we talk about our many words, you know, we're we're just, you know, taking up the air in the room sometimes rather than making a poignant statement. I did a series of lessons on a radio program that I do. Uh, recently, and uh, those that series centered around the last words that people say, and uh, I couldn't help but notice some uh, people in history and some of the things that they had said. Um, you know, recently, um, uh, David Crosby had died, and it was noted in some of his final tweets that uh, he got in a conversation with someone about heaven, and his statement was, "Heaven's overrated." Well, I'll tell you, what, I wouldn't want that to be the last words out of my mouth before I leave this earth. Um, and, and a lot of things like that. Um, Joan Crawford, the the big actress, you know, she won an Oscar in the 70s and things like that. Uh, she was big time. And uh, as she was dying, she had a maid that was praying for her. And she told that maid, don't pray for me. Don't don't you don't you don't you tell God to do anything for me. And, you know, what what audacity people have to to make those their final words. Well, really, the point of that lesson was to focus on the last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. And, of course, he said, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he tells his disciples, go into all the world, teach the gospel to every creature, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe the things that I've commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Final words. And, you know, my premise for that, those lessons was this. If you knew that you were going to share some final words with someone, wouldn't you make them seem rather poignant? Wouldn't they be important? Wouldn't they be words that, that you want to leave this life with some, you know, a significant message that you can impart to someone to, to carry out in their own lives? And uh, there's a lot more to be said about this, but Getting back to something Stephen said earlier, I remember going through a crisis, you know, many years ago and someone asked me to pray and uh, and all I could say was, Lord, help us. And for me, that was one of the most poignant prayers that I ever offered to God uh, because he knew what my needs were. He knew what our needs were and he helped us 
overcome. But I also want to focus just real quickly here on um, we've had some other good comments here. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. You can't praise God too much. That's for sure. But it must be according to, to his way and his acknowledgement. Uh, Terry again says, casting cares is different than trying to impress God with our many words and empty vows and promises. Uh, I love that statement because it reminds me every time I go to God in prayer, it's not always going to sound like a greeting card. <laughs> Sometimes we just need to get, you know, you know, in a mindset to speak as God would speak and uh, and go to his word. And then uh, I'll share this last one with this uh, Matthew 12, 36. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak. They will give account of it in the day of judgment, Matthew 12, 37. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. There's some other things, but you can see a lot of the good comments uh, being made over in our chat. And I want to thank our listeners uh, for adding those. Mark, you had one more comment, right? Yeah, I was going to add in with those passages that you were reading from our uh, from our viewers, and those are good passages to add in from the book of wisdom in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 19, where it says, My beloved brethren, let every one of you be uh, quick to hear, slow to speak. And that's the same principle that we're bringing out here. And Stephen, you were mentioning singing, we need to listen to the words of our songs and mean them when we, uh, when we sing them. And I've told this story before, but... Uh, I was. This was reported to me by one who witnessed it. There was a song leader that began to lead the congregation in the song, I want to be a worker for the Lord. And he stopped in this verse and said, let's, let's sing another song. You all don't mean any of these words you're singing. And now that's, that's rather extreme. Uh, and, uh, but I bet that made an impression on everyone there that uh, maybe I need to look at that song again. Do I, am I being a worker for, do I want to be a worker for the Lord? And am I fulfilling that in my life? We need, like you said, we need to pay attention to the things we say to the Lord. Based on the passage you quoted a moment ago, it reminded me of the old statement we like to say that God gave us two ears and one mouth. We need to listen twice as much as we talk. Great observations, gentlemen. Um, you know, it's one of those things, are we, as we put the next question up there, uh, when it really comes down to it, are we in love with God's word? You might say God's voice or our voice. And I think in our culture today, there's a lot of people that are in love with their own voice, but, and they're not too impressed with what God has said. It, it We need to come and listen. We need to come and listen to what God tells us to do instead of ad-libbing and coming with, with our own plan. And I think there are people that come to God like, hey, I got a plan. And God says, I'm not interested in your plan. I've got a plan and you need to work that plan. So the section talks about vows and it's, man, keep your vows. And if you're not, then don't make them. So uh, briefly, as we look at this question and then get to our next question, uh, what are common excuses that people tend to use to exempt themselves from and uh, from promises made to God. And I don't know, to me, my mind always goes to the person who's sick. They got a very bad diagnosis and, or, or something, something tragic happens in their life. Um, and it's like, and, and it's like, God, God, if you will just, if you will just get me through this, then I will, 
I will be there. You know, I'll be there every Sunday and things like that. And then kind of like Pharaoh, when, when the frogs left, when there's relief, when the pressure's off, it's completely forgotten about. And I've seen that with people. I've had people come up to me at funerals and say, this Sunday we'll be there. We'll be there. And crickets on Sunday, they never showed up. Uh, gentlemen, I'd like to see you pick your brains a little bit on some of your observations of any sort of kind of common excuses that people tend to do um, to give to exempt themselves from promises made to God. Well, uh, your your opening there kind of reminded me of the fellow who says, Lord, if I make it through this hangover, I'll never drink again, you know, and then he's back to it. Um. Uh, it, you know, the biblical model of this really is is in Mark 7, isn't it? Um, you know, where Jesus says that that you tell someone that uh, you don't need to, I'm paraphrasing, but that you don't need to take care of your father and mother. It's Corbin. You've given it to the temple. You've given it to, to God. And so you no longer have to take care of your father and mother. Well, those people who lived under the law, they had essentially made a promise. They had been dedicated to God. And, and, you know, when, when the Hebrew, when the Israelite was to serve God in such a way that that responsibility was on them to take care of their mother and father for the sake of God, for the sake of who commanded those things. Um, I don't have a whole lot as far as examples, but I do think that sometimes that people's positions on certain topics change because of family connections. Uh, divorce and remarriage changes very quickly when one of your children uh, undergoes uh, uh, an unscriptural divorce. Uh, maybe somebody has a hesitation or a refusal to correct those in error. But I will say this, it, it, in Acts 5, it was too late for Ananias and Sapphira to even voice an excuse. They They had made a promise, essentially. They had said this was the full amount. And they had no excuse. And and I, I believe in that, that passage, too, if I remember correctly, there, there just is nothing that Ananias has to say before he's struck dead. Uh, and so that's the sad situation is that, you know, people, you know, again, it's back to we need to be careful with how we treat God. We are not approaching someone who is just our buddy who we can flaunt our uh, uh, cares with. You know, I, I, I'm reminded constantly that, that it's a good thing for me to keep my word to somebody. And uh, it's it's a great failure when I fail to be somewhere that I told somebody I would be at without at least letting them know beforehand, hey, plans changed, et cetera, et cetera. Our word needs to mean something. What does it mean to God? Uh, that's, that's about all I have. But y'all may have better things to contribute there. Well, I was thinking of what Jesus, and those are good comments, Stephen. I appreciate that. And uh, I was thinking of what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36. I say to you that for every idle word, and that word idle means unprofitable, uh, spoken, maybe spoken in emotional uh, situations to where you just blurt it out and say something because uh, you're desperate. He says, for every, idle, for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. 
you will say, well, Lord, you know, I, it was a tough situation. It was an emotional situation. You know, I didn't really understand what I was saying. The Lord says, look, <laughs> you know, you may say it was just an idle word or a careless word, but Lord says you'll give account for it. You'll give account for your heart. You'll give account for saying it, the reason you said it. And then the next verse says, for by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. That's a scary verse. Um, and that, that helps me to keep my lips shut in a lot of situations because the less, you know, the, in the multitude of words uh, is found much sin, the scripture says, much transgression. And so the less said, the better. President Calvin Coolidge was famous for being silent cow. Uh, he didn't say very much. And that frustrated the press and frustrated other people. He was just a man of few words. And he was a man you can't look back on and say, boy, that guy got himself in a whole lot of trouble. No, he was pretty boring. And uh, his presidency was sort of boring because he just not a whole lot of things happened, at least not bad. Uh, and the same for us. We need to be very, very careful about our words. And we're, and we're duly warned by the Lord that he's listening. And if we say something, we better mean it. Um, it's a very important and fearful thing. Looks, looks like, Chris, we got some good comments coming in that people say, well, some people say, well, I made that promise a long time ago, and that kind of exempts you. Or, well, it's not convenient. I'm, I'm busy right now. Things have come up. Chris, one that I hear, I think, a lot is that God understands. It, it, it's amazing how many people can read God's mind that, well, God understands. Or because of what I'm going through right now, uh, God does not expect me to keep that. It, it, I don't know. One of the trends in America, Chris, that worries me is this trend of I'm weak and I'm a mess. I'm weak and I'm a mess. And we're weak and we're a mess. And that gets you sympathy. Yeah. So um, it's okay. But, and, but, and I, and it gets you excuses. And I think the danger though, Chris, is that people are going to tiptoe around you when you say that, and they're not going to give you the advice that you really need to hear. And they're not going to give you the responsibility you need too. And so I think that can really backfire on you of, um, um, because you need to be admonished. We, we need correction. We, we need ex, ex, to be exhorted and we need to be rebuked from time to time. Um, so um, it's, it's interesting. I have a friend that when someone starts to kind of try to get out of something, they'll say, them, those are weasel words. <laughs> and I think the thought is that no weasel words, okay? Don't try to weasel out of it. But Chris, did you have any observations here? Yeah, they kind of go right along with what you've already said. I mean, one of the first things I wrote down was, oh, you know, God understands. This is the problem that we run into a lot when we are trying to um, make excuses for ourselves. We use God's own characteristic against him. He's a merciful God. He's a loving God. So, you know, I can break my promises because I'm just I'm just a worm. I'm just a human being. And honestly, I'm, I'm a little tired of hearing that excuse. Uh, God doesn't want us to be that way. He didn't say, you're just a human, therefore you're excused. He said, be like me. You know, He wants us to follow in his pattern. He wants us to be like his son. 
Uh, he said, don't be that way. He never does anything to excuse our, I guess, mediocrity, uh, quite frankly. Uh, and, he, you know, there's I've heard this statement a lot of times about people. Well, you'll just have to excuse him. That's just the way he is. Once you get to know him, you know, uh, you, you'll you'll get to like him and understand him. We excuse people's I'll just call them sins, uh, character flaws, whatever it might be, because we get used to it. And, and isn't that how sin rubs against the conscience? It sears the conscience because we just kind of get used to the way somebody is. So we excuse it. We excuse people for their uh, attitudes. We excuse people for, well, I had a girl once tell me, um, you'll have to excuse me. I talk about people. <laughs> You know, and I was like, what a confession to make. But it wasn't a confession that she seemed to want to make a change. You know, it was just like, this is the way I am. You're going to have to accept me. And I'm like, Ooh, wait a minute. You know, that's, uh, you know, that friendship didn't last too long. But that was just something that that sticks in my mind that people are always wanting to throw God's characteristics back in his face. And here's another one that comes up quite often is that. After a bit of time, people will look at God and they'll say, well, God really hasn't done anything for me. And of course he has. Um, you know, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Nobody can do that. But here's people that want to point the finger back at God. And because they're not getting what they want or their way or whatnot, they look at God and say, well, he's not keeping his promises. I'm not going to keep mine. And it reminds me of a story once I heard many years ago from a man who just, quite frankly, I don't believe is faithful to God anymore. But I'll never forget. It was um, Stephen mentioned Wednesday night services. We we have Bible studies on Wednesday night. And that's kind of been a tradition among a lot of churches uh, for many years. And uh, we meet together to kind of get us through the week, encourage each other. And we continue our Bible classes. And that's a commitment that we make, you know, you're typically elders of a congregation establish that as a time that we meet, but people have it in their mind that, well, Sunday morning is more important than Wednesday. Well, I, one, I don't like the idea when somebody says that something's more important than something else. One, there's no biblical foundation for that. And I still, to this day, have not heard anybody give me a good reason as to why one thing is more important than the other. You know, the Lord's Supper is more important than the sermon. The, the the sermon's more important than the song service or vice versa. All kinds of weird stuff. Where do people come up with that? Anyway, my, my point of my lesson is this. He looks at me and says, uh, I won't be there Wednesday night. I made a previous commitment. And I'm like, previous commitment? You know, what about the day you were baptized into Jesus Christ? You know, the previous commitment that he made was going to a country music concert. And I'm like, that's that's a previous commitment. You made your commitment to God well before that. There have been a lot of concerts I've missed because of Wednesday night service. And um, and those are things that people it's not a judgment call. It's it's people uh, that need to, you know, struggle. They struggle with their faith and eventually they'll lose that struggle if they make previous commitments that they keep their word to. And they don't keep their word to God. And that's one thing that I see here when I see this passage in verse, um, let's see, where does he say? Verse six, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. And I think here's a person that uses their mouth to commit to something worldly and they follow through with that. And then you know what they say? Well, I gave my word. 
you gave your word. You know, if you gave your word to Satan, you're off the hook. You you can uh, you can break that. We'll let you. <laughs> Something to think about. Okay, Chris, let's get that last question up there, and we'll 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 wrap up our show for tonight. Um, you know, he he goes to oppression and injustice in eight and nine, but he says, "Hey, you got some corrupt government official who's taking advantage of you." He's being he's been taken advantage by someone higher up. That's just the way the system works. But he does say that the king does cultivate the land uh, better an imperfect government than anarchy seems to be the thought. But then he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance. That would be like possessions with its income. This to his vanity. I like verse 11, when goods increase, those who consume them increase. And I thought, I think the idea there is that um, the more you have, the more people you need to take care of what you have. You need, a, you need an accountant now. You might need a lawyer, might need a gardener. Uh, you need your people. And so the more you have, the more people you have to pay. That is that, that, that money's going somewhere to, uh, to take care of the whole system there. And certainly Solomon learned that with all the people in his administration and all the people he had to feed, like, man, okay, we got to bring in a lot of tax revenue to pay for this. Then it says, so what is the advantage to the owners except to look on? And that's pointed because Solomon says at the end of the day, the rich man just gets to look at things more than you do because he's just renting them and that that that's kind of the final advantage he just has a better view for a while and then it says the sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep and then he points out in verse 13 and following is that there's also the danger of that wealth will sprout wings and a bad investment and everything's gone and you got nothing to give to your kids and it, it it there's no permanence to it or as jesus said moth and rust and thieves break in and steal so that seems to be in the same line in the same vein but what warnings does the writer give us concerning putting our happiness and hopes in money and possessions what's the danger of putting all our eggs in the basket of stuff, really nice stuff. That's going to make me happy. Your thoughts, gentlemen. Well, Mark, you mentioned a number of them there, and he, he just goes right down through there with verse 10 and on that it'll never be enough. It's addictive. Um, I've seen that many times. Somebody will take a lottery ticket up. They'll give them their 20 or $30, and instead of going and buying things, they turn right around and buy more. Because, they, oh boy, I can win more and more. It's addictive. It brings many worries and concerns. The laboring man can sleep well, but a man with a lot of money, he's got a lot of things to think about. You know, what could happen? You know, I could lose some of that. So he can't sleep very well. Bad circumstances and harm can come. It can disappear quickly. It can go away quickly. Uh, it causes life to be full of travail and difficulty. Uh, Chris mentioned Mr. David Crosby there for his death, talking about heaven being overrated. Now, here's what's overrated. 
the wealth of this world is overrated. And Jesus said, what doth it profit a man if he gains a whole world and loses his own soul? And there's a lot of folks, I think, that could come back to this world and tell us, you know, he's right. <laughs> I, I've, I've lost my soul and because I tried to get it all. Um, and and it, it, that's overrated. And that's what the wise man is saying here. It's not worth it. Yeah, ask David Crosby now that same question. And what would be the answer? I think he's got a different perspective on it now. I think that, that again, it kind of comes back to what is life under the sun? Uh, it's a life without God. Uh, I used to read into that a little bit too far to say that, well, this is a life devoted to the pagan gods, like under the sun gods and things like that. But it, 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 I think if I go that route, it really limits the text because the text really is is pointing out you will either live your life according to the will of God or you will try to abandon that. And abandoning that is a complete exercise in misery. And so that's that's the whole thing. There are wealthy men who have lived righteous lives before God. Uh, it's happened. Um, I, I, Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. And that's the whole point. He was seeking after that. And that that is the whole goal. And obviously, in what he did in burying Jesus' body and in putting his, his body into the tomb, that took some wealth that probably took some clout and influence to be able to go before Pilate took some uh, courage to go and ask for the body of somebody like that and go before the, the Roman governor. And so I think the whole point of this passage seems to be uh, look at what happens to those who devote their lives to these riches um, as, as Mark mentioned, the more you get, the more you have responsibility for people seem to think that these, you know, super rich people are just like Scrooge McDuck. Like they go into their money bins and like swim through gold coins, but that's not really the case. I imagine somebody like an Elon Musk wakes up and there's like a million things that he's got on his mind. Um, I don't want that life, you know, personally, uh, and, but here's the thing too, can you live such a life and still be pleasing to God? I think Ecclesiastes kind of tells us that it is somewhat possible. Solomon was extremely wealthy and there's still the possibility that he, he ended up faithful before the Lord. So it's not, uh, either, or either I I'm rich or I'm not. And only the poor are the ones, the poor are the ones that are going to stand right before God. Well, not necessarily. The heart that seeks the Lord diligently, that's the heart that will stand. The heart that says, I know that I'm broken uh, before you. Uh, so, Good thoughts, Sir Stephen. You know, it's one of those things that, and we've seen a lot of things in the news recently of famous people die, they're addicted to sleeping pills and things like that, is that all that wealth, all that wealth without God uh, just twisted them and spun them out of control uh, to, to the point that many of the relationships were alienated. 
their marriage, their marriage or marriages fell apart. Um, they burned a lot of their bridges with people. Uh, people found them rather difficult to live with, didn't want them around, even with all their wealth. So, um, yeah, there's what, what Solomon says here is so relevant to the world that we're living in today. Um, and, and be careful with the idea of, cause I I've been there, um, of, um, man, if, if I can just get to the point that point that it's not month to month living, it'd be nice to have a little bit, little bit of cushion, little bit of cushion be nice. Okay. But you know what, once the cushion shows up, you know what other worries show up, like, what if I lose my cushion? <laughs> so just a heads up, just a heads up. Never, never take for granted the value of a good night's sleep. And if a woman married you when you had nothing, okay, then it was for love. And pity, pity the rich guy because the rich guy doesn't know who loves him. But the poor guy does. Chris, what do you got as we close out our show tonight? Oh, there's so much. <laughs> I was reading Proverb, uh, excuse me, Psalm uh, chapter 39 earlier, in about verse six, and um, it says, "Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He re heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them." And uh, some versions use the word they, they he rushes around. And I, I, when I when I was looking this up, I, I noticed that term rushes around. We we rush around. We like to say we rush around like chickens with their head cut off. It's an old expression, but uh, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. We, we gather, gather, gather. And um, then we don't know what it's all about. You know, we started all over again the next week. And, um, you know, what did we do with what we were given? And of course, the Bible teaches us many principles about you know, gaining in this life. First Timothy six and verse 10, uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. You know, it leads to evil, the love of money. We need money. We need that cushion, as you said, Mark, but, uh, he says with it, we wander away from the faith. Why? Because we put our priority in the things of this life. And I've had people tell me before, well, I can't be there Sunday. I've got to work. Well, you know, typically it used to be at least you worked on a Sunday by choice. Uh, you worked because you wanted overtime. And the old excuse has always been the same. I have to feed my family. Let me tell you something. If you, if you worked right from Monday to Saturday, God would make sure you could feed your family on a Sunday. Uh, I, I believe that with all my heart that God provides. It was once described to me like a man who gave and gave and gave. And it's not like he had a lot, but he gave and gave and gave. And somebody said, how can you give so much? He said, the more I give, the more God gives back. And God has a bigger shovel than I do because he talked about shoveling and I told the story wrong. But anyway, that's the gist of it. Well, when I look through these passages, I, I think about what each verse in particular means. And it kind of goes back to the title that you gave the lesson, Mark, in verse 10. You know, I can't get no satisfaction. And uh, no matter what you gain in this life, you're always going to want more. Uh, ask somebody, what kind of where do you park your car? Where do you park your car? And uh, in, when you're in a parking lot, maybe at the grocery store, some people park it way out where nobody else is. Why? Because they're worried about it getting scratched. It's nice. It's new. It's expensive. They oftentimes, when you look at somebody's niceties in this life, you better believe they're probably in debt up to their eyeballs, as we like to say. 
And uh, that's one of the problems that we have in having things is that we will always owe men for those things. If we live simply and let our needs be small, we can attain and have those things if we live within our means. But verse 11, when goods increase, they increase to uh, they increase they increase who eat them. Uh, it's just you know more, more, more. The more you have, the more you're going to gain. I look at some of these businesses and I see all the money that they make, and they want more. They advertise more. They want to increase more. They want to grow more. I'm sure for many of us that have lived in small towns for a long time, when our town starts getting real big, we see it good for the community, good for prosperity. The next thing you know, though, our roads can't handle the big crowds. Our stores can't handle the big crowds. And we wish we lived in another small town again. People want growth. They need growth. But when it comes down to it, we we get kind of sick of growth. And we, we want the peace and quiet and humility uh, and uh, the simpleness of this life. If you live in a small town and go to the big city, you're probably like, I don't want to live here kind of thing. It's all a matter of perspective. But as has already been pointed out through many of these lessons is that the next generation will never really appreciate it. And that's why we shouldn't put our happiness and hopes in the things that we have, because one day all these things will be somebody else's anyway. And uh, we can get sentimental about things. We can hang on to things or we can learn to let things go. And we can learn to minimize because as verse 15, I think aptly sums it up. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. But what can you take with you? And that, as, as I mentioned before, is treasure in heaven. Guys, it's been good studying with you tonight. There's a whole lot more that we could say about these things. I want to thank in particular the folks that are uh, commenting and asking questions in the chat line. And uh, we have just you know so many good comments. Go back there and read. A lot of these good folks, we, we have folks across, we like to say across the pond, <laughs> uh, over there in the UK, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, you're watching this program. Uh, we have folks in India watching this program at six, seven o'clock in the morning. Um, thank you for spending that time with us. And uh, thank you for uh, adding to our program with your, with your good comments tonight. Guys, it's good to be with you. Hope to see some of you tomorrow on the question and answer session. And definitely looking forward to our study next week as we cover Ecclesiastes chapter six. So y'all have a good night. Want to invite you once again to be with us during these programs that we've been mentioning. And of course, we want to remember that uh, every Wednesday, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, uh, we have the live Bible Q&A that begins at noon Eastern Standard Time. So please join us for that study there. And you can be a part of that study in your comments in the chat, as well as sending us questions at questions at answeringreligiousera.com. Uh, send those in and uh, we'll add those to the lineup. You can also watch this program, as you know, on Facebook and YouTube, and you can comment on those chat lines as well. Don't forget, again, uh, watch Mark Dunnigan or listen to Mark Dunnigan every morning during the weekday, Monday through Friday, beginning as early as 5 a.m. Uh, with the Daily Answer podcast. And you can go back and uh, catch up with many great lessons uh, he gives sometimes good basic Bible lessons as he did this morning. Uh, and sometimes he'll share with us, uh, stories of his life and you'll be encouraged, um, and take away some good thoughts that you'll really, as I do, uh, you'll be thinking about the rest of the day. If you start your day with a daily answer podcast and remember after this program airs, you can go back and listen to us once again, uh, through any podcast platform after the original show airs the same with the Q and a program. And we hope that you'll take advantage of that as well. We want to uh, tell you about some other programs that go on throughout the week. 
our own Bob Myhan, who joins us uh, on a regular basis, has his program called Bob's Bible Basics every Monday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then uh, uh, some of the women uh, bringing lessons for women uh, are older women, likewise, Thursday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Mark Dunnigan's wife is a part of that study, and I think you'll be encouraged if you're a woman looking for faith or want to strengthen your faith, uh, listen to the words that they have to share, and they will encourage you. Well, once again, we thank you for joining us here on Answering Religious Air, and we hope to see you next time, next Tuesday, if the Lord wills. Come back and be with us, and as I said, uh, study up Ecclesiastes chapter 6, and uh, we'll give you a study from God's Word. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time on Answering Religious Air.